Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, CNN's John Avlon on lessons from Lincoln. The Confederacy justified a defense of slavery under the auspices of liberty. They used the word liberty to try to defend slavery. Get your head around that. What you see often when Lincoln shows kindness to Confederates who've been captured, an overwhelming awareness that what they've been told about Lincoln, what they've been told the war is about, the demonization of Lincoln, that they'd been fighting for a lie. Now, he's a reconciler in a time of radicals and reactionaries, but he balances his moderation with moral courage, and that makes all the difference. And that's what we don't see enough of now. John, thanks for coming to Chatter. Hey, man, my pleasure. It's good. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to talk to you because you're at the forefront of what I'll call popular applied history, especially of the presidential variety. And I obviously have an affinity for that too, but it's history. It's because you're doing no kidding historical work, digging into primary sources and, and trying to bring forth stories that most of us didn't learn in school. It's applied because your interest is in why it happened and then what we can learn from yeah. those things, how we can apply that to the current situations we face. But it's also popular because you're not putting these arguments out there in academic presses or to limited closed conferences. You're doing it in mass market, widely published books. You're doing it on CNN in your reality check segments nearly daily. You, you bring something forward from history to apply. And this, given all the challenges we have today, it seems to me that popular applied history is, is more important than ever. I, I appreciate that. And I couldn't agree more, obviously. I mean, partly it's because I think history gives us the ability to impose perspective on our politics and our current events. Yeah. And also the implicit promise of applied history was always what attracted me. What what can we learn and apply to our own times? Mm -hmm. How can it make us, you know, lead a better life and be a better leader and, and be better citizens in a self-governing society? And and I think the last several years have shown in really stark terms um, just how urgent it is that we keep the lessons of history in mind, among other things, so we can hold ourselves to a higher standard. It's surprising to me, and I know it shouldn't be, but it's surprising to me that not everyone feels that way. I have friends who are fully functioning members of society, most of them, and they're doing wonderful things, doctors and accountants and, and other things. And some of them really aren't immersed in this history and wanting to learn from it. So how did you get there? What are your first memories of being interested enough in politics in general and presidents in particular, that it, that it got you into this multi-decade examination of presidential history and what we can learn from it? It's, it's a great question. I, I, I think a lot of it comes from the influence of my grandparents who were immigrants. And I think the proximity to that immigrant experience tends to make people more patriotic, not less, tends to make people more appreciative of the country um, and, and the shared history. Uh, even though their families have joined it, you know, with, within living memory. Um, you know, it, my grandparents, uh, like many, most, um, appreciated America more than people who perhaps were in a place to take it for granted. Um, the uh, opportunity 
the balance of, of liberty and equality. Um, in particular, my grandfather, um, uh, my mother's father, who was born in Argentina, came through Ellis Island at the age of three or four, uh, lived his whole life in Youngstown, Ohio, but uh, you know went to school uh, on a scholarship and fought in World War II in the Battle of Lady Gulf and came home to become a surgeon and raise five kids. Um, you know, he he felt so strongly about Lincoln and Truman and and, and people like that. Um, and, and I just, you know, I, I always felt that uh, one of the advantages of being a, a grandchild of immigrants is that you felt an obligation to the opportunities they had provided you. Hmm. Um, and I always felt that acutely. And do you remember and, talking? Do you remember talking to them about their experiences and their views, or were these things passed down through the intervening variable of your parents? <laughs> the intervening variable. Yeah, I like political that. scientist in me comes out sometimes. Yeah, I'm telling you. Um, uh, you know, I, I do remember talking to them a, a little bit, but it really was partly just because of my, my my interest. You know, I do think some of this. You know, you mentioned that some of your friends who are highly functioning citizens aren't interested in in history and and politics, and I would argue, you know, that. Um, that it's sort of the it, it, it's the price you pay for living in a self-governing society. I mean, you you have an obligation to care about these issues. That doesn't mean you need to be narrowly obsessed. Um, but but in a deeper sense, I, I do think it's about people of a similar spirit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was watching a. I'm not a huge Grateful Dead fan, although I've grown to appreciate them. But there was a, a really good documentary called Long Strange Trip a few years ago. And in it, Jerry Garcia is talking about the influence of the Beats and Jack Kerouac on him. Mm-hmm. And then the influence that he would like to have. And put aside all the obsessives who thought that, you know, Jerry Garcia was the second coming as opposed to an interesting, flawed human who <laughs> himself did a synthesis of American culture and music. Um, he said, you know, I hope that people who, who l- listen to us get inspired are, are people of a similar spirit who get inspired and carry it forward the same way he was inspired by Kerouac and the beats. And, and I do think there is a, there is a thing about people of a similar spirit and people who enjoy history and politics and, 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 and applied history. Yeah. I think it provides a, a sense of firmament for us mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of that helps provide a certain sense of meaning in America right. and, 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 and a sense of responsibility to moving that story forward. So I think that's why it seems common sense to us, because we're people of that similar spirit. But I do think it is a broadly engaging way to get people interested in the responsibilities uh, of, of, of civic life in a democracy. You know, the, the Lincoln and Washington in particular playing this role of sort of uh, secular saints of our civic religion. And I think that's a concept that we've lost a bit, but is really important. And it, it is interesting that your grandparents specifically would talk about Lincoln or Truman, that there is this personification of American ideals into the, the person of a president that is held up as, as an ideal. So you get people... Particularly Lincoln in the Midwest. Um, Truman Absolutely. was more, he was deeply grateful that, um, you know, that, that I think just being a president at a pivotal point in his life when he was serving in the Second World War in the mm-hmm. Pacific Theater and then came home uh, to America. Yeah, not too many people citing... Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan and Andrew Johnson uh, in those same terms. So it's not inherent in the presidency, but it is amazing that it is almost largely, you know, the presidents who do that. Some people will respect an Alexander Hamilton or a Benjamin Franklin, but when it comes to the general public almost mythologizing an American figure and what they mean for the country, it it's Washington, Lincoln, and maybe FDR for a certain generation. And that's, 
that they really stand as that pantheon with Jefferson and Madison thrown in, depending on the sure. people's background. You know, I, I could make a case for TR and yeah. the Truman Cena resurgence and Ike recently. But yeah, yeah. I, I certainly that 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 upper tier, it really has always been basically a race between Lincoln and, and, and right. Washington, frankly. Well, we're having this conversation in February, which really seems to be President's Month because you've got links to the birthdays of Washington and Lincoln, the designated President's Day, which has had an interesting history yep. itself. But if you go back in your own history, just a few years ago, in your book, Washington's Farewell, you, you were focusing, of course, on the first president and his, his farewell address. But you wrote, there are founding fathers who are famous for their writing. Washington is not one of them. Why is it so important to, to focus on Washington's words when he himself, even though he integrated and elevated contributions from others for his speeches, his writing was much more workmanlike. It was much more about getting the job done. But you wanted us to remember and recall some things about Washington's speech. Why focus on Washington's words so much in addition to his deeds? Well, I, I think the, the farewell address is what interested me um, because, uh, you know, we live in a time, obviously, and it's been going on for most of, of my adult life. And I think if you do a flow through of all my books and all my journalism, there's a fairly consistent sub Rosa theme, which is combating hyperpartisanship, polarization and pointing out an alternate path mm -hmm. rooted in, um, I think, strong, principled, centrist leadership. And how that's the the great American tradition that has helped us overcome divisions in the past, but very often history, and particularly founding father history, is misappropriated by people who want to use it as an excuse to push their own far right hyperpartisan agenda. When nothing could have been further from Washington's uh, own politics and 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 wisdom, uh, and 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 the farewell address contains some of the most eloquent warnings about the dangers of what we would call hyperpartisanship. Um, that's one of his most extended riffs. Washington, of course, isn't does not join a political party as a matter of principle. The Constitution doesn't mention political parties. It does mention journalists, uh, I like to point out, but it doesn't mention political parties. And that wasn't an oversight. Um, and, and so in an attempt to sort of reclaim some of this forgotten history and the farewell dress itself, which had been the most widely reprinted American document, including the Declaration of Independence, it was civic scripture and it fell out of favor. Um, which is a story I, I, I tell as well. But I think it seemed to me that the fact that our first president wrote a, a, a open letter to his friends and fellow citizens, but that was specifically directed to future generations, right. us, about the forces that he felt could destroy or derail our democratic republic, rooted in the lessons of his life mm. in war and peace, was an enormously compelling story. And especially just to, to remind people that, you know, he the things he identified, Hyperpartisanship, excessive debt, foreign wars, foreign interference in our elections could not be more relevant to the challenges that we're facing today. I mean, most people are familiar with it, I would I would guess, yeah. because of its main lesson about foreign entanglements. And that's the most Which, quoted or misquoted line from it. Misquoted. That's Jefferson. That's not even in the speech. Yeah. I, the, the tone was there. The idea was there. But mm -hmm. uh, it was not an essential you make the point that its its main lesson really is about hyperpartisanship, at least in its relation to the to the current day. Um, Absolutely, how Washington could rise above 
emerging partisanship then because he was George Washington, because he had led the Continental Army, because he had presided over the Constitutional Convention, because he was the first president. He could play that role, but I'm not sure he could play that role today. If George Washington, even with all of his uh, experiences and all of his skills were transported into today's politics, is it possible to have a a figure above partisanship given the structures we have now? Well, it, it, it's important to remember two things. One is that you know Washington's position is um, is totally unique to him and his historical moment, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's the general who wins the war for independence. What's u- unique truly? is that unlike almost everyone who's been in that position, he does not displace the tyrant to become a new type of tyrant. Mm-hmm. As, as Jefferson says, it's the moderation and virtue rooted in the character of one man yeah. that stops this revolution uh, from uh, being subverted, uh, as most others have been, by a new position of a new type of tyranny. Mm-hmm. The other thing to remember, though, is, is, and this is true with both Washington and Lincoln, and I find some comfort in this, is that they were widely perhaps not widely hated, but they were deeply hated by their, at their time and disrespected mm-hmm. by hyper-partisans who were pushing their own agenda. In Washington's case, it was people who were saying before he revolutionized everything and, and walked away from power and set a two-term precedent, which everyone respected until FDR, um, that he was a would-be monarch. Right. Um, they groused that maybe he wasn't as bright, um, that he, he wasn't suited to this task. I mean, and it's all happening on one street in Philadelphia where there's all this partisan press and it really gets under his skin. And in his own cabinet, against his wishes, Jefferson and, Watt and Hamilton are scheming to create competing political parties. Mm-hmm. They're fighting each other under assumed names in the newspapers. And, and certainly the demonization and disrespect for, for Lincoln was, was far more widespread and far more obvious to the extent that his mere election is greeted with an insurrection and secession. Um, yeah. And I get into all that, but but you know, it is a reminder that even the figures who are literally on Mount Rushmore, who can be placed on the highest pedestal, who still have some critics today, and, and Lincoln continues to have sort of obsessive neo-confederate critics, but it's a very small crew. Um, uh, that, that, that doesn't mean that they were above reproach or criticism in their time. Right. And again, I think that's, speaking of applied history, that's comforting. You know, that, that, that yeah. you know, you know, perfect's not on the menu and neither is unanimity of opinion. I, so get over. It. It's also insightful for, for today when people decry things like leaks from an administration about sensitive negotiations to realize that here was George Washington, of all people, who had Thomas Jefferson tell him to his face, you know, OK, I, I will keep secret our deliberations in these meetings and then ran right next door and was reporting them <laughs> to the press so he could undercut Hamilton. It's uh, it's not anything new in American it, history. But it's so much worse. I mean, what Jefferson did is incalculably bad by any contemporary standard. I mean, literally, you have the Secretary of State who is privately funding the editor of a newspaper that is hostile to the administration, in particularly the foreign policy it's pursuing with regard to France. I mean, he is subverting the administration's foreign policy from within the office of the Secretary of State. I mean, it's damn close to treason. Yeah. It, um, it's fascinating also. About, makes me think well, differently yeah, about Jefferson the more I learn about just how much of that he was doing. 
Yeah, it Jefferson's a puzzle like they are, but he's particularly a puzzle. He's you know, Martha Washington refused to see him when he visited Mount Vernon. Right. What's also interesting after Washington's death, what's also interesting is that the first inaugural, well, Jefferson's first inaugural, which is a, a great speech, mm-hmm. um, he reverses so many of the op- positions he had held when he was warring with Washington, the Federalists almost on a dime. I mean, the responsibilities of the office changed his perspective. Where you stand depends on where you sit. It's an axiom yep. that actually holds in so many ways. It's uh, true. Let's let's turn to, to Lincoln. And he's the subject of your new book, Lincoln in the Fight for Peace. Uh, Lincoln said that winning the peace was, in his words, the greatest question ever presented to practical statesmanship. And that surprises some people because there was this whole civil war thing going on. But he thought winning the peace was more challenging than winning the war. So let's give some context to this thing that we'll talk about in some depth. What about him, an untested small town lawyer in central Illinois? What, what about his personality made him so wise as a wartime president and as a, a leader of the peace? What characteristics did he have that combined to allow him to surprise everybody, including perhaps himself, with his management of the war and his vision for peace? In, in one word, character. A second quality is the capacity to grow. But I think it's actually, and I make the case, that it's his unique leadership style, focusing on reconciliation, because he is this genuinely a man of peace in a time of war, is rooted in the fundamental qualities of his personality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he he can be defined by an interpersonal absence of malice, despite his will to win on the battlefield. Um, I think the core qualities of Lincoln's personality are empathy, mm-hmm. honesty, humor, and humility. Mm-hmm. And I think more than we perhaps commonly appreciate, a person's politics and their principles reflect core elements of their personality. You know, that's why character is the most important quality in a president, as yeah. we should have learned again. It's interesting. But as history teaches us over and over. It's interesting that you cite those empathy, honesty, humor, and humility, because they overlap strongly with the set of core ethical values that when plenty of survey research, I, I used to teach ethics classes and the Institute for Global Ethics did a lot of survey research and focus groups around the world. And they would ask groups to identify ethical values that they thought rose above all the others. So people may agree that it is good to be many, many things, but it is really, really important to be what? And they tended to focus on things like honesty, compassion, respect, responsibility. These always rose to the top whenever people got together and coordinated on what ethical principles they all agreed were important. And you've just named most of those correlate with what you said. You talked about empathy, which is compassion, um, corresponding highly with just love in in the sense of charity for all. Uh, honesty, an importance of the truth. Talked about humility, which I think has some relation to respect and responsibility as well. Um, but you throw in humor too. And humor is one that we always used to argue about in those classes. Can Can you be an ethical leader without humor? Most people got to yes, but it was kind of a struggle to think of one, to think of somebody who you thought was an ethical leader who didn't have some sense of humor. And I find that Lincoln 
is absolutely remarkable in this, perhaps one of our leading humorist presidents because of all the anecdotes and little stories he would always tell, even when presented with momentous decisions, he would boil it down to something he heard on a creek when he was walking through central Illinois to get some books from a neighbor. And you, you shake your head thinking, were people thinking that he was just kind of some bumpkin or were they actually seeing that there was a, a kernel of wisdom in these little funny stories he would tell? Well, that's the, that's the great question. Um, and a lot of his contemporaries did think of him as a bumpkin, but people who listened closely and appreciated what he accomplished and grew to appreciate his leadership understood that he was speaking in parables, you know, that, that he understood from, from the Bible, from Aesop's fables uh, to his favorite books as, as a young man, certainly along with Shakespeare, that, you know, people most often responded to stories and humorous stories and it could save him time and and humor for him was also a form of self-medication when it came to the more depressive aspects of his personality I mean, he combines a lot of opposites he's born in the south moves to the north mm -hmm. um but but he also you know he 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 is constantly switching between sunshine and shadow mm. and and he reads not only tells story constantly to the point where it irritates members of his cabinet because he will do it at inappropriate times um, but, uh, it also, um, you know, reading humorous books of humorous, Artemis Ward, Petroleum V. Nasby, keeping them in his pocket. And he's reading them aloud at, at, at really momentous times. And one of the most revealing stories in the book about this, I think, aside from where Lincoln actually in a few moments reflects on how he uses stories mm -hmm. as, as a management tool, um, is, uh, there is a friend of his named Isaac Arnold, who's an Illinois congressman who goes to the White House in 1862 after a really brutal union defeat. Mm -hmm. And he sees, finds the president in his office alone, uh, reading uh, Artemis Ward and laughing. And, and Isaac Arnold, who's his friend, says, what the hell are you doing? How can you be laughing at a time like this? And all of a sudden, he says in his memoir that he saw Lincoln's face change. And, and, and the smiling mask dropped and his eyes filled with tears and he threw the book down. He said, don't you understand that if I could not find solace in, in humor at a time like this, I could not function. I could not go forward. So the, 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 it was self-medication. Right. He didn't drink. That was self-medication. Yeah, he found a way through it. I, I love the fable that, that he would tell when Confederates like Jefferson Davis tried to argue that the slaveholders secession was driven by a love of liberty. He used to say, the shepherd drives the wolf from the sheep's throat, for which the sheep thinks the shepherd as a liberator, while the wolf denounces him for the same act as the destroyer of liberty, especially as the sheep was a black one. Plainly, <laughs> the sheep and the wolf are not agreed upon a definition of the word liberty. What a great little, what, three sentences there to really cut to the issue that pertains to, to the situation right now in terms of my freedom and what it allows you to do. 100%. That's one of my favorite stories. And I did a reality check on CNN uh, called Donald Trump and the Wolf's Dictionary uh, in, in the immediate aftermath of, of the uh, election when people were talking about election integrity as they still sometimes do in completely opposite ways. And certainly, you know, we, we see the debate about questions of freedom and liberty today. Um, but, but Lincoln really fixated on this and it irritated him as a lawyer and as an author, the sort of counterfeit use of language for the opposite 
of, of what it seemed to be. But we saw it all the time. I mean, the Confederacy justified a defense of slavery under the auspices of, of liberty. Mm -hmm. They used the word liberty to try to defend slavery. Right. Get your head around that. Yeah. Lincoln, as president, and even, even before he became president, was first concerned with, with trying to avoid war and then to quickly win it, despite his very, very cautious generals. But by early 1963, he had thought so much about war and what it meant and laying the groundwork for peace that he issued the General Orders Number 100, which many people don't know the, the story of. But talk for a bit about this crucial step toward the laws of war and the ethics of killing each other. So, so this is a fascinating example of, of um, Lincoln's, the dual, the dual nature of Lincoln's uh, self and the responsibilities he felt. Um, he was a man of peace in a time of war, but he was determined to win that war. He believed that, you know, like, like Grant and, some, and Sherman, uh, that the, the tougher the war could be, the more merciful it would ultimately be. But he crucially, and, and you know, folks hadn't confronted a civil war on that scale before. And what, remember, was the world's sole democracy at the time. But he started working with a Prussian immigrant and law professor named Francis Lieber, mm -hmm. who himself moved from South Carolina to New York um, and uh, had, had been corresponding with um, uh, Lincoln's chief of staff, Halleck. Uh, and, and he was busy. It, he had sons fighting on both sides of the conflict, Lieber did. Um, and he started drawing up uh, the, the, the rules of, of war. And, and they basically tried to see, formalize some, some constructs around war to reduce its barbarism, to say some things are out of bounds, targeting citizens or, you know, retribution against citizens, assassinations, poisonings, um, you know, and, and it, it, it was a revolutionary attempt and it ended up influencing um, the Geneva Conventions and was cited in Nuremberg. Um, and it was incredibly farsighted. And Lincoln was doing this with Lieber in, in, in the depths of the war in its bloodiest phase. Um, but I, I think that is it's one of the things, and there have been a whole books written about this, including Lincoln's Code, which is very good. Um, but but I, I thought it was a story worth telling because it, it does show that you know you, you're never going to civilize war. But Lincoln, uh, it was one of the contributions that he doesn't always get credit for, and I think it does speak to this balance. Um, you know that he had his prescription for for winning the war, winning the peace after winning the war is unconditional surrender followed by a magnanimous peace, and. And a, 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 an establishment of the rules of war helped create the the foundation for that. I get the sense from from looking at Lincoln's code and and reading you know your retelling of this episode that it wasn't purely instrumental. That it wasn't Lincoln thinking we will have better success in the war if if we do if we treat prisoners of war correctly because our prisoners of war will be treated correctly, giving us an advantage on the battlefield. There, there may have been some of that. But I get the sense that it was more an issue of first principles, that this is just wrong to do certain things, even in a, a state of, of armed conflict. Did you get that sense? I, too? I, I, I think that's right. I think there's both a, um, a, a an idealistic and realistic benefit from the, the laws of war in Lincoln's eyes. I think they are an extension of his own um, rather sentimental nature in the same way that he was constantly writing pardons must to the frustration of, of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. If he could find an excuse um, 
to, you know, sign a pardon, he would, even though, you know, his critics said that it undermined military discipline. Um, but he notably would not commit sentences for slave traders or people whose, uh, you know, offense was rooted in cruelty. He, he could handle cowardice um, because he felt that the other person would go on to, you know, learn their lesson and do more good, but they can't do any good or learn a lesson if they're dead. Um, and uh, um, but but I think I think both things are, are true in, in his embrace of that. You know, I was I was surprised. I can't remember which biography it was, whether it was uh, Donald's great biography of Lincoln mm-hmm. or Burlingame's. Yeah. But one of those made made a point that Lincoln throughout his life showed little interest in the history of his own family, that he didn't dig deep mm-hmm. into genealogy. It was almost like he didn't want to know, perhaps because of his strained relationship with his father or just perhaps because his mind was so looking to the future all the time. But he did read some history. He, he famously got his hands on any book he could as he was growing up, and some of that included history. So he, he would have known some of the stories of ancient Rome and how cruelty worked out for the emperors who were themselves deposed when they were, when they were bad people. But I didn't get a sense that this really came from a strong historical foundation. He wasn't, he wasn't debating it in his own mind and certainly not in his speaking and writing the way that the framers of the Constitution were looking at the examples of the Netherlands and others and trying to bring forward explicitly the lessons of history. And you know, I, 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 yeah, go on. I, I think that's Yeah, important. so I, I put it to you as, I mean, Lincoln wasn't ahistorical, but it seems like that informed his thinking without him consciously... Uh, applying it as such, that that he had a sense of history, but it informed his thinking of right and wrong and how to handle competing rights, ethical dilemmas. It informed those things more than it explicitly led him to a decision. So so I think you make a, a, a really good point. It's one that I touch on uh, briefly in the book, which is that, you know, the founders did draw very deeply, not only on the examples of uh, you know, democratic republics and, you know, you know, Swiss cantons of the Netherlands or whatever it is, but particularly on, on the examples of ancient republics in Greece and Rome and, and how they failed. And then they consciously tried to incorporate those lessons in the structure of the constitution that they were building. Right. Right. Lincoln faces a problem that by comparison is totally without precedent. There has never been a civil war on this scale. And the, America is the world's sole democracy. So as we often forget that fact, but it makes the stakes even higher. All the autocrats and monocrats and aristocrats in Europe are waiting for us to fail. This is basically the 80-year I told you so. And I told you this democracy and freedom thing was, was absolutely unsuited to human nature, and they would clearly self-immolate. And it's just taken a little more time. And when that happens, we're going to go back and carve up the new world. And then this going to be great for, 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 you know, the traditional way of life, which is rooted in a, a very um, cynical assumption about human nature um, and about the possibility of democracy to work. Um, but Lincoln felt the responsibility uh, to, for the American experiment to endure, particularly because it was about whether democracy could succeed. It wasn't just about winning the war for its own sake. It was, of course, also about liberty and the freedom of of 4 million slaves at the time. But it was really also about whether democracy could endure, not just American democracy, but any democracy. Um, And those are among the stakes. And so because he faces a problem without precedent, you know, he is obviously, you know, he has learned a lot about leadership and history through the lens of Shakespeare, uh, Mm. through reading the Bible, 
but there's no obvious parallel he can draw on. What he does know is that you can't salt the fields uh, like Rome did to Carthage mm -hmm. in a civil war. That doesn't work. You need to actually find a way to bring them back and reunite a nation. Um, it, you know, that, that, that sense a total war doesn't work in a civil war. It's fascinating that he, he stayed true to that even during the peaks and, and valleys, mostly the valleys of the yeah. first few years of the civil war when, I mean, he was famously deferring to the generals on most military matters, uh, frustratingly so, annoyingly so, reading the history of just the incompetence and cowardice of, of some of the leaders. Amazing. But he was preserving those big political questions for himself. He, he wanted to mm -hmm. keep that big picture in mind even during the darkest days, didn't he? Yeah. And, and, and you know, <clears throat> look, <laughs> Lincoln's relationship with the generals itself is fascinating because Lincoln assumes the office with no executive experience and basically no military experience. Like he's been nominated to be captain of a, you know, little, little, little troop during the Black Hawk War that sees no conflict. Um, and so on paper, he looks like the worst person to be president at this particular time, right? I mean, the Republican Party is a new upstart third party. Lincoln is a one-term congressman who's been out of politics for over a decade. He has no executive experience. He has no military experience. This is not the guy you would pick out of a lineup to be president at this crucial time. But his character and his capacity for growth end up making all the difference. Um, and, and, and I think that's one of the many uh, lessons, lessons for us. Um, you know, it's not about whether we're going to find another Lincoln, but, but it does show that, that um, some things are more important, uh, are more fundamental uh, character. That's the thing. Now, as we get to the, the end of the war and the Union is, is clearly winning, they finally pin down Lee's army. Uh, eventually, Lincoln gets to walk through Richmond, the capital <laughs> of the Confederacy. And that time in Richmond upon its fall to the Union was really insightful into his post-war intentions. Walk us through his visit and what it tells us about Lincoln the person and Lincoln the visionary. So I, I begin the book with um, a scene with Lincoln stepping in to the burning Confederate capital, um, holding his son Tad's hand on his 12th birthday. Um, this is to me one of the most dramatic and cinematic moments in American history. And it gets weirdly short shrift, even in like multi-volume Lincoln biographies. Yeah, definitely. Um, it seems to me it's dramatic enough and is, is, is loaded with meaning enough, even though it's a brief visit. Um, that it deserves being told in great detail because it's the president uh, providing the personal example of being a peacemaker. Um, it's not just his words that are instructive at this time, but it's his actions. Um, you know, there's a whole series of comical errors where he ends up getting rowed in um, on a longboat into Richmond. There's no military party to greet him. He does not enter the city like a conquering hero. They don't even know they don't even know where to disembark in the city. It, no, it's a no. The secret service of today would never allow such a thing. Um, but here he is in a capital that could be rife with saboteurs and assassins, and they can't even figure out where to land. No, and it was rife with saboteurs and, and assassins. But he he walked in, and and he um, 
he, he walked up the hill towards the Capitol, but the fires are still burning. The city has not yet been fully secured. Um, and he's mobbed, um, mobbed by, you know, liberated slaves and poor whites as some of the, the sort of the, the society Confederates look on sneering from closed windows, but every step of the way, you know, for example, one, one black man bows and, and, and takes his hat off and then Lincoln returns the gesture. And the, there's a reporter named Charles Coffin from the Boston journal who says it was a gesture that upset centuries of caste. Um, uh, and, and he is just, he is consistent. He sits in Jefferson's Davis's chair he refuses to indulge in triumphalism. Um, he speaks to the assembled slaves and basically paraphrases uh, uh, Jefferson in a, in a fascinating sp- a character a speech uh, from a book of a, a, a African-American soldier. Um, by the way, in the role of, of African-American regiments has been not, I think has been somewhat written out of our history and needs to be restored um, and particularly impactful in, in the, uh, the, uh, the, the fall of Richmond and the securing of Richmond. Um, you know, he gets asked to meet with you know local residents to get a feeling for the people. And one of the people who are still there is the Assistant Secretary of War and former Supreme Court Justice Joseph Campbell. And um, Campbell, you know, Lincoln reiterates his three indispensable conditions for peace. Um, it's not only some you know recognition of the Federal Union and end of slavery for all time, but a refusal to accept uh, ceasefire before surrender, uh, and 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 everything else he's willing to be flexible on. But but that moment. It is just that, you know, it is a cinematic moment and all the details are just extraordinary. The fact that, you know, a, a black sentry is put outside Mrs. Robert E. Lee's house. Um, uh, the fact that, that the arm, Union Army is saying that, you know, no disrespect towards civilians will be tolerated. Um, it, it, is a, it is a really extraordinary moment. And, and all of Lincoln's words and gestures are just exemplars. It's right. a portrait of a peacemaker. And the, the force of his character being such, it's it's remarkable given human nature and the, the personal toll of the conflict over the years before <laughs> that the soldiers obeyed orders that, I mean, how many conquering armies going into the capital of the enemy don't loot and rob and pillage? It's, it's rare in history. It has happened, but it's rare. But in this case, it would have been quite easy to see the town completely destroyed and in fact, Lincoln almost set the example personally, and people saw that as he walked through the city. That's the key point. And the fires that had been burned were set by the Confederates. <laughs> you know, that's important to remember. They destroyed their own city to deny the Union troops control of it. And 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 we actually see similar things happening by accident or design throughout the South that are sometimes attributed to Union troops. Um, Lincoln's example is key here. I mean, General Godfrey Weitzel, who's the general in charge of the 25th Corps that secures, you know, Richmond, who himself is a German immigrant, um, asks Lincoln as he gets rowed out to a boat that night, you know, how should I treat the citizens of Richmond? I mean, these are people, this is the, 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 the heart of the Confederacy, you know, the seat of the slaveocracy. And Lincoln says to him, and he characteristically doesn't give an order. He provides guidance. He said, if I were in your place, I'd let him up easy. Let him up easy. That says a lot. Uh, w- one of the vignettes in Richmond that that strikes me again, especially given what's gone on in our country recently, is when Lincoln walked by Libby Prison, which was a a place where the Confederates had held some Union prisoners of war and had actually not subscribed to many of the things that Lincoln 
uh, put out there for the Union in terms of how to treat troops. Some horrors did take place there. And it was by this point being used to house Confederates, but it was it was known as a place where where horrors had occurred. And some people in the crowd were, were urging him to tear at least that building down because of, of what had happened there. And Lincoln calmly just says, no, leave it as a monument. What, is, what does that tell us? And how does that inform the way we think about the monuments controversy of the last few years? Well, I placed that story in the introduction as well as in the whole section that I devote to Lincoln and the fall of Richmond. Uh, for, for a reason, and for precisely that reason. Lincoln would have had every reason in the moment to say, yes, let's tear it down. You know, we want to rebuild society. We want to get rid of the record of this horrors that occurred here. Um, and, and, and somebody who said, you know, we need to focus on the future and reunite as a nation could have been forgiven for saying, yeah, tear it down, start again. And the fact that his instincts to say leave it as a monument is profound. And I think it does say a lot about the importance of historical memory um, and the importance of humility. And not every monument is an endorsement. It's about the perpetuation of memory. Exactly. And, and, and the key is to learn the right lessons right. from history so that we're not to condemn to repeat it. Erasing history is no solution. And, 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 you know, there are limits to which this can be applied or should be applied to the Civil War statuary, particularly... You know, when you look at how many of them were done uh, relatively recently, the most recent example I'm aware of is, is uh, you know, 1970, when there's a statue of um, Nathan Bedford Forrest, mm -hmm. you know, Grand Wizard of the KKK, erected in the Tennessee State Capitol. Mm -hmm. Like, that's got nothing to do with history. That's, that's, about, that's about folks in reaction to the civil rights movement yeah. trying to, to double down. And, and, and it is worth remembering, of course, that these Confederates were definitionally traitors in the immediate aftermath of the war, you can understand why their children would want to think well of them. That would be part of the process of healing. Right. But, but the impulse to erase history that makes you feel uncomfortable yep. um, is a civic sin. Yeah, we spoke earlier on this podcast with Marita Sturkin of uh, New York University, who's done a lot of research on memorialization and how museums and monuments face some real challenges of how do you not just have uh, artifacts and objects related to what occurred on a particular day, like 9-11, which she focuses a lot on, uh, or historical events. You, you don't want to glamorize them. You don't want to shine a spotlight on them to reward what happened, but, but you want to have a story told. And anytime you're trying to tell a story about something that was controversial in history, there's, there's going to be some energy in the room. There's going to be people who disagree about exactly what should be told and how much of what led up to that event and how much that followed that event should be told. And it took me back. I didn't say this to her, but it just occurred to me how many tens of millions of people have gone through Auschwitz and Dachau and Bergen-Belsen and places that there are, in a sense, memorializations and have had that very visceral experience to learn about the Holocaust through those, if the attitude would have been, if they would not have listened to someone like Lincoln and they would have just torn everything down that was ever painful or uncomfortable, how many people would not be aware of some of these events in history and think about ways to prevent them in the future? Keeping the sites intact, um, not to be places of pilgrimage for neo-Nazis, yeah, but 
as, as places of learning in the same way that, and I talk about this briefly in the book, because as, as I'm sure we'll get, the book takes an unexpected turn for, for some people and applies Lincoln's ideas forward, right. including the occupations of Germany, mm-hmm. Japan, and the Marshall Plan. But, you know, one of the reasons um, that the American armies uh, insisted that local Germans and Poles tour the concentration camps that translations be provided um, in German for uh, the Nuremberg trials and that the evidence be displayed and the journalists taken, or German journalists, mm-hmm. was precisely so they could not say after the fact that this was never occurred. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's another reason that historic memory is so important. It's not about <clears throat> um, self-flagellation as a society necessarily. It's about a reckoning. It's about mm-hmm. ensuring that this impulse to erase difficult memories can't occur because then you're deprived of the knowledge that can help avoid them the next time. One might say truth and reconciliation. One might say that as a phrase. One might say truth and reconciliation. Yeah. Even commissions dedicated to said thing. You know, one story that I hadn't recalled until you reminded me of it was when, when a Confederate general, a prisoner of war, I think it was Rufus Beringer. Ah, I love this story. Yeah, he was brought to Lincoln, who who asked about if he'd been a member of Congress because he recognized the name. Uh, walk us through that conversation and and how much it revealed about Lincoln at this amazing time when he, he. I mean, this is a captured Confederate general. This is somebody who was leading the troops that were killing thousands of Union volunteers and draftees. Um, what talk us talk us through that conversation and how it developed. Right. It's, I think, one of the pivotal uh, scenes in the book. There, there are a few that I think typify um, Lincoln's empathy and decency and the impact it had on changing hearts and minds. But he's come back from Richmond. He's at City Point, Virginia, which was subsequently renamed Hopewell. And um, he is, uh, which is the, the, the union headquarters that Grant established um, south of Richmond, in fact. So we're you know, we're on the front lines, but within the Confederacy. Civil War front lines can be complicated without intimate knowledge of Virginia. Um, it's not as, as, as simple <laughs> as it sounds. Um, Lincoln hears that among the prisoners um, is a Confederate general. And he kind of perks up at this. I've never met a Confederate general. And he gets a little bit buoyant of, about it. And he asks to meet him. And so they bring uh, Rufus Berenger. They bring Berenger to him. And he looks at him. And he looks down at the name and he says, you know, by any chance, he says, you're from North Carolina. By any chance, did you serve in Congress? And uh, Berenger says, no, but my brother did. And Lincoln's eyes light up and he, say, <laughs> he says, oh, he was my chum. <laughs> Such a bizarre old word, but he says, <laughs> he was my chum. And, and Lincoln really took an enormous amount of comfort from old friendships, particularly that one term in Congress. This one term in Congress was enormously important to him in so many ways, um, interpersonally, but also in terms of the lessons he learned uh, and in dealing with, with that branch of, 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 of government. Um, and, and then he proceeds to sit down, a personal connection's been made, and, and he and Berger sit down on the table and they, they talk about the war. They talk about the respective merits and demerits of generals on either side. And they have a lovely conversation. At the end, Lincoln's, you know, he's got to go. And he says, well, General, is there anything I can do for you? Wait, Lincoln says that to the captured general? Correct. Lincoln says that 
to the captured general. Is there anything I could do for you? <laughs> and Lincoln's aides sort of in the background start like smiling and cracking up. They're like, yeah, there probably is, but you shouldn't. And 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 Berger says, you know, well, if anyone on earth can help a poor devil like me, I assume it's you, sir. And he says, well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. You're going to be transferred to a prison in Washington. And I'm told it's not a very nice sort of place. Hmm. But I know a man who's the biggest man in town. And it's possible, just possible, that he may be able to help you. And he puts his glasses on and takes out a pen and begins writing a note to Edwin Stanton. And he often played off his relationship with Stanton. Stanton played bad cop. And Stanton was uh, Secretary of War, correct? Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, yeah. um, who's a complicated figure to say the least, um, but a key member of, of the team of rivals approached the cabinet. And um, and he writes a note and says, look, this is this is a Confederate General Berenger. He is the brother of an old friend of mine. And 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 would you please keep him in mind when he comes down? You know, don't don't release him, don't do anything inappropriate, but just keep him in mind and treat him with extra decency mm -hmm. if possible. And he hands the note to Beringer, and Beringer stammers and chokes up a bit and tries to say thank you. And when he goes outside, he breaks down mm -hmm. in tears, and the President Lincoln and the generals can hear him crying. And implicit in that is what you see often when Lincoln shows kindness to Confederates um, who've been captured an overwhelming awareness that what they've been told about Lincoln, what they've been told the war is about, the demonization mm -hmm. of Lincoln, that they'd been fighting for a lie and that his decency and kindness overwhelmed them and helped the healing process begin. Mm. Let's, let's shift more explicitly to Lincoln's vision for peace. And mm -hmm. it was expressed a, a bit earlier in his second inaugural address, which you spend quite a bit of time dissecting, especially those, those final 74 words, the, the closing yeah. of the address that really seal his vision for peace. Uh, tell us what that vision was and how, he, how the words he chose to express it sunk in so well and, and actually stand, stand important up to this day in terms of how he used contrast and how he used the, the power of simple words to communicate his ideas. Well, as you say, the, the second inaugural is in some ways the framing device for the book, particularly the last paragraph, which is also the last sentence, 74 words, with malice toward none, with charity for all. Um, and in that entire paragraph, um, uh, which uh, ends with a just and a lasting peace for ourselves and with all nations, um, he, it's actually an enormous departure from the rest of the speech. Um, it is a very Old Testament speech about the Civil War being shared penance uh, for the civic sin of for the sin of slavery, um, which was being brought upon both sides. While the problem was localized in the South, the North Lincoln felt was complicit in it because it had bought the cotton, it had bought the rice. It was content to tolerate it. The last paragraph is all New Testament, and Lincoln exhibiting what I call New Testament leadership. It's the promise of life after death, um, but only if conditioned upon radical forgiveness right. and a rededication to our common humanity. And that's what um, Lincoln says. Those words become the most famous words he ever wrote. I think they're the ones truest to his soul, particularly at that time, and to his approach to winning the peace and why indeed why he's focused on winning the peace. I mean, the, the point of the title, The Fight for Peace, um, which some people might point to and say, well, isn't that a contradiction? Um, is that 
what Lincoln understood is what I believe to be true, which is that you don't really win the war unless you win the peace. And peace must be waged with an intensity that rivals war. It must be planned for. It must be a sustained effort. Um, and that's what so often we get wrong. Yeah. It seems to me that reading those words now in understanding what happened, which, which we'll get into, it's easy for us to project backward and see that everybody must have recognized the wisdom of this and seen that this was the best both short-term and long-term strategy. But that's not the case. Uh, the idea that Lincoln was just saying, well, let's forgive and forget and move on. Critics were, were throwing that at him and saying, this is not right. And he had a virtual revolt within some parts of the Republican Party. Uh, how strong was that dissent? And do you think it affected Lincoln in his final days and weeks? It was incredibly strong, although, um, you know, the way you just framed it did not represent Lincoln's real position. But certainly from the radical Republican position, you know, they wanted to salt the fields. They wanted to rip up Southern culture from its roots. Um, uh, Edwin Stanton explicitly wanted to do so. So did Thaddeus Stevens. I mean, he wanted long-term military occupation, obliteration of state lines, obliteration of state capitals. And, and, and Lincoln had a, a characteristically, I think, more balanced response. Um, he thought it was enormously important um, to offer amnesty for like Confederate rank and file. He, you know, he said to Grant over, over and over, we wanted to give them the most liberal and honorable terms. We want to these people to return to respecting the laws and to go about their lives. Um, what he is he is determined to do, though, he, he doesn't want high level Confederates or, or high level traders to be able to um, return to power. Certainly not immediately, um, because he understands that, you know, it will take time to heal the wounds of this war. And indeed, as early as 1862, he is setting up structures um, that he feels will be able to help the nation um, heal. Uh, it, one of the ways is he's looking towards, I mean, the, the, his, the, the Transcontinental Railroad. Um, he desperately wants to depolarize the debates between North and South by moving the focus of the nation West, where there were new opportunities for new growth and new experience. The only way to get over old, get over old history is to make new history. And that, that if with economic growth would create a new sense of shared investment in a common future. Um, so the economic expansion of it all was enormously important. Um, and so, so he's setting up context. And he also hoped it rather explicitly that, you know, that it would, it would take time, but he wanted blacks and whites, particularly in the South, to be able to live into a new order. You know, he had a vision of a multiracial democracy, right. but Lincoln was a gradualist. You know, he was a moderate. What I say is, you know, he's a reconciler in a time of radicals and reactionaries, but he balances his moderation with moral courage. Mm -hmm. And that makes all the difference. And that's what we don't see enough of now. Um, I mean, he, he has the arrows and the olive brands. He has the tough mind and a tender heart. It's a balance of those opposites, his insistence mm -hmm. in pushing his generals to be more aggressive on the battlefield while maintaining a consistent interpersonal absence of malice and refusing to demonize people who disagree with him. And uh, importantly, communicating that, right? I mean, he, yes. in some of the speeches, he did this, although not often. That's why we can focus on things like the second inaugural. But in in cabinet meetings, uh, he would he would make clear what most of his post-war goals were. He, he didn't lay it out in a memo and reiterate it every meeting, but you get a sense from his meetings that 
Those around him, even if they didn't like it, like Stanton, they knew what Lincoln had in mind. But crucially, one person did not. And that's Andrew Johnson. As Jared Cohen warns us, when presidents pick vice presidents, they should really, really take care to pick somebody who won't just help them win the election, but somebody who can actually serve as a good president. Andrew Johnson was not that man. And in fact, uh, I think I know of only one substantive meeting that Lincoln had with Andrew Johnson before Lincoln's assassination. And there's no record of that meeting. So we don't even know exactly what he communicated to Andrew Johnson. Tell us how Lincoln's vision was, how do we put it politely? Uh, Warped would be very politely, was discredited, was rejected, in in many cases was reversed by Andrew Johnson after Lincoln's death. Well, I I, I think you need to understand that when it comes down to the men's essential character and the personalities that define their principles and their politics, you know, Andrew Johnson is the anti-Lincoln, as I put it. Um, I mean, he, he is, um, they, they both come from humble beginnings and they knew each other their one term in Congress or Lincoln's one term, but you know, Johnson is bitter and spiteful and consumed with resentments. And the radicals originally loved him because he's the one to his great credit. He's the one Southern Senator who does not secede. He denounces secessions as treason must be made odious. And so mm-hmm. the radical Republicans think that they've got a real fellow traveler here. And actually, in in Lincoln's last days, um, one of them uh, says, you know, that he hopes Lincoln will be assassinated because he thinks Johnson will be so much better, i.e. tougher when it comes to uh, uh, um, reconstruction. Mm -hmm. What they find very quickly is that Johnson's actually a class warrior, not a race warrior. He is actually incredibly racist, um, just deeply resentful of the wealthier plantation owners who made it more difficult for poor whites to compete in the South. But he's going to be damned like a lot of poor whites at the time if he's going to cede any ground um, to newly freed slaves. And, and, and so, I mean, he, he is precisely the wrong man at the wrong time. Politically, it's an inspired choice in 1864. And, um, you know, but it, 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 Lincoln... No president had been assassinated up to that point, even though Lincoln was confronted with assassination threats throughout and had a fatalistic attitude towards it. But he didn't adequately appreciate that Johnson could actually be president. And um, and I mean, Johnson shows up drunk at inauguration and actually Lincoln's pretty furious with him and only meets with him on his first in his final day. Um, and there is, as you say, no record. Um, how nobody asked Johnson to memorialize that conversation after the fact is beyond me, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll just gloss that one over. Um, but he, 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 he gets the balance perfectly wrong in retrospect. I mean, he rails against anything resembling uh, equality or certainly voting rights for blacks. He is obsumed, obsessed with perceived slights and gets in a massive fight with Republicans. Um, and, and he is giving amnesty to leading Confederates from almost day one, which they then see as that they take the leniency, not as mercy, but as license to try to reestablish black codes, which is basically slavery without the chains. And that begins, I was shocked to realize, find this out in my, my research. And this begins in the late summer and fall of 1865. You've got former Confederate generals taking control of state governments and basically saying, okay, well, slavery is illegal, but Without, with the exception of that fact, we're going to reassert control effectively through a series of black codes right. that set the whole template for, for Jim Crow uh, and segregation. And then, of course, the KKK uh, comes in and, and the Johnson path is the opposite 
of Lincoln's path. Mm -hmm. um, and and we see the disastrous, truly disastrous results from that. And Grant tries to get the nation back on the on the, 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 the Lincoln path and briefly succeeds through things like the Enforcement Act, which gives him the power to combat the KKK with a Southern-born attorney general, right. which I think is enormously mm -hmm. important, Amos Ackerman. Mm -hmm. And here's the Atlantic Monthly. Here's what they, how they describe Johnson. Egotistic to the point of mental denise, insincere as well as stubborn, cunning as well as unreasonable, vain as well as ill-tempered. Wow. Well, who's that sound like? Andrew Johnson clearly got so much wrong, at least from the perspective of the uh, radical Republicans, but I, I would think the majority of American opinions soon thereafter, uh, except among those in the South who were eager to see this basically slavery and everything but name. And yet people, I'm not sure that the radical Republicans would have said, well, what we should have done instead is what Lincoln said, right? I'm not sure that that means that they would have agreed with his overall policies they probably still would have gone for a third way of complete and total <laughs> occupation and subjugation. Well, I think Lincoln was in the third way position, but I take your point. No, Lincoln was stealing himself. Um, I mean, I, I, I focus on the book on the, the, you know, last six weeks of Lincoln's life between the second inaugural, his final speech in which he lays out a vision, a practical, broad vision for reconstruction. Um, and then I carry the story forward. But um, with the afterlife of, of the idea, but there's no question that that um, Lincoln is stealing himself for fights with the radicals in his own political party. Um, you know, in his last cabinet meeting, some of the radicals feel that Lincoln is coming around to his position. But, you know, there's no evidence his position has actually changed. Um, right. You know, he 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 wants liberal and honorable terms. He wants to treat uh, particularly Southern rank and file uh like men and reason with them um, without allowing uh, slavery mm -hmm. uh, or, or the slave owning class to reassert its primacy on the South. Right. Let's turn to what you just mentioned, some of these uh, after images of Lincoln's vision for peace and how future leaders did or did not accept his principles. Uh, first, let's talk about Woodrow Wilson in as World War I closed. How did Wilson apply or not apply the principles that Lincoln had been promoting for the end of the Civil War. This is a fascinating um, part of, of the book, I hope, but it was certainly interesting to, to research. Woodrow Wilson's child of the Confederacy, really of Reconstruction. He's the only American president to grow up in a state that loses a war, Virginia, um, and Georgia, and then Virginia. And he suffers for it. I mean, his father had been a a preacher who did you know, biblical justifications of slavery. He remembers seeing, uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson and Jefferson Davis through his town with chains and his mother's making soup out of whatever they can forage. And they really suffer. And Link and Woodrow Wilson suffers that enormous resentment uh, towards the North, towards uh, the Union. Um, and he carries into college when he goes to uh, Princeton University, ultimately. Um, over time, he becomes a real convert to Lincoln. And he said, you know, it's because I, I, I'm proud of being from the South that I rejoice in the Confederacy's defeat. <clears throat> He's a political science professor, and he really grows to appreciate what he sees as Lincoln's more fundamentally moderate vision of Reconstruction and how it could have been better for the South and, and, and national reunification. It's just generally Lincoln's genius for, for leadership and management. You know, he is the first president 
since the Civil War to be born in the Deep South, despite the fact that he's elected as a progressive governor of New Jersey, former president of Princeton University. What's amazing is, is that as the Civil War, uh, sorry, as the second, the First World War um, is looming and, and America is trying to be brought in, you can see the scars of the Civil War on Wilson's approach, where he gives a speech to Congress saying, you know, we want peace without victory. Mm-hmm. He's very sensitive to the feelings of the uh, vanquished yeah. because he does not want to create this compounding resentment because, you know, he thinks that will just create the next war. Hmm. Now, this becomes doubly ironic <laughs> uh, because, you know, he writes his 14 points. He wants to be generous, magnanimous conquerors, right? So, you know, on the surface, you know, hey, magnanimous peace. He's really learned the Lincoln lesson, albeit from a peculiar perspective. He gets from the beginning one crucial thing wrong. The formula that Lincoln has is unconditional surrender, followed by a magnanimous peace. The the Germans surrender, but sorry, except a ceasefire. But it's precisely not what what Lincoln was offered from the Confederacy and refused, which was a ceasefire before surrender. And he refused because he said, no, you've got to surrender before a ceasefire. That's what the Germans don't do. So they don't have a single allied troop on their soil. They just think, you know, we're probably going to lose this. They, 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 they have an armistice. You have months of negotiations at the Treaty of Versailles. And, and Wilson is so focused on his League of Nations that he ends up getting the opposite of what he wants. Yeah. Because the other uh, leaders of, of the Allied powers, David Lloyd George, who incidentally is obsessed with Lincoln and quotes him all the time. And Clemenceau, who as a young man was a reporter in America covering Reconstruction. So, I mean, Lincoln hovers over all of this. Right. Um, Ultimately, they get the worst of both worlds. They get, you know, reparations that increased resentment, but not the will or the ability to actually enforce them. Mm -hmm. So and then Wilson doesn't even get the League of Nations because he doesn't involve the Republicans in negotiations and refuses to compromise. So, you know, despite being so influenced by the experience of the Civil War from the loser's perspective um, and being an enormously powerful position as leading a leader of rising power, the irony is that, of course, you know, the Treaty of Versailles is a disastrous document that's not an end of the war, but basically, a, you know, 20 year ceasefire. And and it becomes the test case in how not to do it. Absolutely. And when we talk about applied history, the, the people in the Second World War definitely looked back at that example. But interestingly, you point out they, they didn't just look at the most proximate examples. They They looked back to Lincoln directly himself, too, such that Winston Churchill said, those who can win a war well can rarely make a good peace. And those who make a good peace would never have won the war. But Lincoln was quite consciously for everyone involved, the exception to that. He was the one person who actually could resolve that dilemma. And he influenced people like General Lucius Clay, uh, Douglas MacArthur. Um, Let's hit each one of those. Um, Lucius Clay, less known than MacArthur, but his role in post-war Germany was absolutely crucial, as was his building on Lincoln's ideas. 100%. And this book, the seed of the idea, came from a quote from General Lucius Clay that I found years ago, where he is asked by a reporter during the German occupation, what guided your decisions? Mm -hmm. And he said, this is the son of a three-term Georgia senator born 30 years after the Civil War. I tried to think what Lincoln would have done for the South if he had lived. Wow, that's telling. 
that's telling. And that's where the, the, this book really came from, is that that quote really fascinated me and with all its implications. And, um, and that's why I take this unexpected pivot in the book to the occupations of Germany and Japan, not only looking at what worked, you know, the good occupations, uh, where uh, this is the good America, but also um, the role that Lincoln plays in consciously inspiring these folks, mm-hmm. um, including Harry Truman. Um, and interestingly, you know, Wilson and Truman, both sort of descendants of, 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 descendants of Confederates mm-hmm. or at least Confederate sympathizers. Um, and Lucius Clay, a, a Southerner, MacArthur, a son of a, a Union soldier himself. But th- this th- Lincoln's example uh, of magnanimous peace finally gets enacted. And it's Lincoln's example as his commitment to reconciliation that remains so inspiring for that right. generation, not only Americans, but around the world. What were the most explicit uh, applications of Lincoln's vision that, that Clay was consciously building on? What were the most explicit manifestations of that in post-war administration of Germany? Well, first of all, I mean, I think the people who were aware that we had lost the peace after the First World War and were determined to win the peace this time were preparing for it in an entirely different way. They were thinking about, you know, government stabilization and military governance uh, in, in post-war situations, about rebuilding vanquished countries, about actually investing them and in restoring civil society as much as possible. Because among other things, because of the example after the second after the Civil War, they were aware that vacuums of power and and and, and lawlessness would breed further lawlessness. They would give rise to vigilante groups and guerrilla groups, and they would perpetuate the scars the of KKK war. The KKK example from the Civil War being among those, right? The, the KKK being the prime, the, the most infamous example. But also the, the lack of sustained investment in the South, which Lincoln had wanted, which could have reduced resentment. It would have been much smarter um, uh, uh, to invest in the South's rebuilding in a wholesale way. Um, than, than to do what we did. Um, and, and so the, the, the Marshall Plan is to some extent the ultimate application of Lincoln's ideas. And also, though, uh, Wilson and, and uh, Marshall himself applying the lessons of Wilson's failures. I mean, they cultivate Arthur Vandenberg, the Republican Senate Foreign Relations uh, uh, Chair, from the beginning so that this is not a partisan project. Right. They make it bipartisan from the beginning. Truman says, don't put my name on it. Put Marshall's name on it. He's much more popular on Capitol Hill than I am. I don't need to take the credit. Let's just get the ball down the field. And they really sell it to the American people as being basically in, in, in you know, enlightened self-interest. And it's a tough sale. I mean, the country's been, you know, at war for an incredibly long time. Um, and and there's, a, there's a chance for a peace dividend. And instead, Marshall and Truman come to them and Vandenberg and say, no, now actually we need to double down and spend more money to ensure that the next war doesn't rise from the ashes of the past. And it works. Absolutely. And then MacArthur in Japan also takes a, I don't know which you prefer, Lincolnian or Lincoln-esque, but he takes a Lincoln-like approach to this uh, in Japan. Uh, What are the main elements of the post-war experience in Japan that pull on Lincoln? Well, it's subtly but different from from Lucius Clay um, in that he chooses to keep the emperor in power. Um, but he says that, you know, that will, if we can co-opt the emperor and basically get him to, to buy in, it will be easier to make the wholesale changes we're looking towards in terms of democratizing Japan and writing a new constitution. And he's got something to work with, um, because Lincoln is an idolized figure in Japan. Even before the war, 
the lessons of his life were taught in public school textbooks inside the emperor's private office. He actually has a bust of Lincoln. Um, so there, there's a cultural touchstone. It is remarkable. There's a cultural touchstone to draw on. Um, and, and he doesn't choose the path of vengeance. I mean, um, it, it, you know, again, he actually tries to rebuild and invest and establish a, a civil society um, that is not a complete contradiction with Japanese culture, but a, but a, a bridge, a hybrid, if you will. Um, and, and what he achieves, and he's acutely aware of the difficulty of, of, of successful occupations from his father's experience um, as a military governor um, and as a Civil War veteran. Uh, and, and so he takes that seriously. And I think part of the larger point of the book, of course, is that we, we study war a lot, but we don't study peace. And, and, and that's where the applied history uh, comes in. It, it is fascinating that we think in the modern era that sports figures, perhaps entertainment figures are the ones who have the widest cultural resonance in other countries. So it's it's Muhammad Ali. It's it's Michael Jackson. It's, um, <clears throat> you know, LeBron James, who are famous overseas and, and inspire people. And we're, we're just past the point of remembering that people communicated before that pamphlets made their way around written speeches mm-hmm. were republished and Lincoln resonated in such that some foreign leaders would claim when visiting Springfield, Illinois, you know, you claim him, but he, he's not only yours. Uh, he is humanity's hero in many ways. And I think your book brings that out. Let's, let's talk about now you've, you've expressed real concern on the CNN reality check that you do and in your writings about the rhetoric of war in our society now, the, the idea of winning at all costs and what political scientists call negative partisanship, um, to the point of saying, if you keep telling people they are engaged in a civil war, sooner or later, they start to believe you. How alarmed should we be right now that this rhetoric is getting us back to a place that Lincoln would recognize as the worst of all political situations? To use a phrase associated with Lincoln's 1860 campaign, we should be wide awake. We should be wide awake as to the dangers of the forces we are playing with. Um, Because violent polarization, um, demonization of disagreement, civic distrust, the partisan breakdown uh, of parties into regional and ideological tribes, uh, the refusal to recognize the legitimacy of an election. These are all hugely resonant uh, circumstances that helped contribute to the last civil war, which killed three quarters of a million Americans. Mm. Talk of a second civil war. And the the quote you read comes after I recount a 1988 quote from Newt Gingrich before he's Speaker of the House, Mm -hmm. where he talks about, you know, all politics being a version of civil war uh, in, in America at the time. And his rhetoric we heard from the militias in the 1990s as well, by the way. Um, uh, which have continued to unfortunately grow in their prominence and participated in, in the, the attack of January 6th. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be better than that. We need to be wiser than that. That's the reason for applied history. We need to apply the lessons of history because we do not need to do this again. And we need to learn the lessons of Lincoln's leadership. Not that we're going to find another Lincoln, but to find someone of a similar spirit, understanding that reconciling approach to leadership. Um, has really been the key. And that is why Lincoln has been a worldwide inspiring figure, uh, particularly among Nobel Peace Prize winners. Uh, There's a consistent pattern. And he really almost invents this leadership style, but we need to look to it again today. That doesn't mean we don't 
you know, confront the root causes of the conflicts. Indeed, we do need to do that. You know, you can't just wish this stuff away. Um, but I think the examples of Lincoln and the second founding uh, and the character and the qualities that he exemplified can offer us a path away from violent polarization. And that's, that's I think, the urgency uh, of, of, of Lincoln's story today and what I hope is communicated in this book. I'll ask you perhaps the toughest question of, of all of this, and it may be unfair. You, mm-hmm. You've laid out this path and you've, you've researched its mm-hmm. intellectual uh, influence on others, but it's really hard. Um, how do you tell people, you know, you just need to have the courage to, to be forgiving. You need the courage to trust that, that people can grow together, that people who have been trying to kill you and been using violent rhetoric against you, that you need to reach out and take their hand and lift them up because we can be better together. Uh, that is that is not practically easy, but it's, it's also not morally easy. That takes a lot of moral yeah. courage, and Lincoln had it. Not all of us have it. So how, how do people get that courage? No, and, 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 and empathy has been strained um, in our current times. I mean, you are having vicious tribal debates over basic facts. I mean, trust has been strained. Empathy has been strained. I I feel it myself Mm -hmm. um, that my empathy has been challenged. I mean, Lincoln sets a, you know, sort of the Jesus of our politics. He sets an impossibly high standard. Indeed, he was compared to Jesus quite a lot, not just because he was assassinated on Good Friday. Mm -hmm. But but I do think that, um, let me give you two examples. Mm -hmm. First of all, uh, it's, it's, it's deeply Christian wisdom. Um, you know, this isn't just love your enemies. It's what uh, Martin Luther King said. You know, you don't defeat uh, hate with hate. Only love can do that. Um, it is challenging. And that's part of the, um, the, the strategy of people who want to polarize us. You know, that they hope that violence will, yeah. you know, well, all compound the cycle right. of polarization. The other thing is, you know, I've done a lot of work also in my, my, my journalism in a book called Wingnuts, um, came out almost a decade ago about extremism in American politics. And certainly we've seen a resurgence in conspiracy theories and cults. If you talk to anybody about how to get someone out of a cult, the surest path is not scalable, but this is what works. Empathy, listening, helping people save face, giving them a place to land, treating them with love, not judgment and not direct confrontation, because if they're directly confronted, they will double down in defense of the cult and the cult leader out of a desire to save face. But the process of deprogramming someone from a cult requires listening, understanding, and then leading them to a place where they talk about their own values. And they start to realize that the cult-like environment and the cult leader is contradicting those values. They need to come to the place itself, but the, the, the midwifing process is actually about empathy as a high road to their reason, going through their heart to their head. Yeah. Well, hopefully those, those words will inspire all of us to try to rise to that standard. Easier said than done, Absolutely. I grant you. I challenge, it is a challenge for me, God knows, every day. Well, let me close out by reaching into our famed Wow, I'm excited for this. All and, right. And uh, find a random question here and put you on the spot because that's just fun to do. Yeah, sure. Why not? If you could convince the president to take one discreet action today related to national security, it would be what? Can I define national security rather broadly? Please do. We do on this podcast, so go for it. I think 
uh, in his State of the Union, President Biden should propose a new crime bill that invests directly in new police in the United States, but also contains core elements of the police reform bill that was stalled in the Senate. Hmm. Have, have you know we, we do have a problem with rising crime in this country right. this is something that biden has had credibility on mm-hmm. he helped author of the last crime bill which say what you will is enormously effective mm-hmm. despite uh certain excesses that came with right. it um which uh had to have to be reformed now and have somewhat been been reformed although mass incarceration predates the mm-hmm. uh crime bills more directly related to the rockefeller drug laws i i, I do think that one of the things we see is when people feel afraid and and physically scared that's when uh, they're most susceptible to these whataboutism arguments that end, can end up empowering, you know, dangerous forces um, because public safety is sort of a foundation for, for civil society. So I think Biden should, uh, and this is a domestic front, which is why it's an expansive version yep. of, of national security. But I do think that um, he should come forward and challenge the Republicans. You're going to vote against more money for cops right now? And the balance will be we need to get some of the elements of police reform that you agreed to. You're not going to get everything you want because there's a reason those negotiations stall. But on those core elements, there there, there a, should a new, be new, bipartisan support because there there is agreement on some of those. Correct. And it doesn't need to include, as a matter of fact, it can specifically address troubling trends like the militarization yep. of police. Yeah. John, this has been a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your insights from, from your research. Oh, man, total, total pleasure. I'm, I'm a great you know, admirer of your work and uh, the whole crew. So it's a pleasure. Thanks, John. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. <laughs>